Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Heard me speak in the past. This is a very significant departure because for me it's really all about the science. And when I went to look for the science on societal interventions to reduce sugar consumption, there was none. Indeed, that is in fact the, 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 the true deal. And so what we're going to talk today about is a synthesis of what you've heard about over the course of the last six hours to try to formulate something that actually makes sense in terms of policy, because ultimately we know in this room that science should drive the policy, but unfortunately the politics get in the way. So I'm going to try to make a case for policy changes in the sugar realm. So I have no disclosures, but I particularly want to thank Laura Schmidt and Claire Brindis, Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF, and also my colleague in crime, Andrea Garber, uh, who is our nutritionist at the Weight Assessment for Teen and Child Health Clinic, and we just uh, penned a, uh, an article called, Is Fast Food Addictive? And I won't answer that question for you, but I'll let you mind wander. <laughs> the point of today is the fact that we're not just consuming sugar. We are consuming an enormous amount of sugar. Now, a little sugar is okay, but a lot is not, and here's why. And you've heard from Dr. Johnson and Dr. Stanhope earlier today about some of the metabolic effects of sugar. I'm going to put it in a slightly different vein for you. In 1900, getting fructose out of the ground, our natural consumption of fruits and vegetables and honey, if you will, total about 15 grams of fructose per day. Prior to World War II, with the advent of the candy industry and the nascent soft drink industry, we got up to about 20 grams per day. By 1977, just before the advent of high fructose corn syrup hitting our shores here in America, we were up to 37 grams a day. That was 8% of our total caloric intake. By 1994, we were up to 55 grams. That's 10% of our total caloric intake. And currently, adolescents are now up to, in some cases, 100 grams of fructose, not sugar, but fructose per day. 25% consume at least 15% of their calories from fructose alone, double that for sugar. So we are not just eating more. We are not just eating more fructose. We are eating more fructose as a percent of our total caloric consumption. So that puts fructose absolutely front and center in terms of our understanding of what's going on in the obesity epidemic. The point is, and you've heard this from several speakers already, fructose is not glucose. The common wisdom says that that sugar is just empty calories. And you can get your empty calories from anywhere. And indeed, the food industry wants us to believe that you can get your empty calories from anywhere because then they're not particularly responsible for any given food that they produce. But the fact is, hepatic fructose metabolism is completely different. Dr. Stanhope showed you that. And I'm going to pose to you that chronic fructose exposure alone promotes the metabolic syndrome. You saw some of that data earlier from both Drs. Johnson and Stanhope. And fructose tricks the brain into increasing total consumption, i.e. the addictive qualities you've heard about already. To make a long story and a lot of biochemistry very short, let's just compare 120 calories of three different carbohydrates. 120 calories of glucose. 
80% will be metabolized by all the organs in the body. And as we heard from Dr. Stanhope earlier, because of the enzyme phosphofructokinase, which is inhibited by glucose, if the liver takes up more glucose, then more of it will end up passing the liver and get metabolized by other organs in the body, thus protecting the liver from the onslaught of excess calories. So if you follow those calories from glucose, here's where they go. They go to glycogen. Glycogen is the store of, li- of, of sugar in the liver. It is liver starch. It is a non-toxic storage form of glucose in the liver. And we know that because we have marathoning carb loaders. We have kids with glycogen storage disease type 1A, von Gierke's disease. They got livers down to their knees. They're hypoglycemic like all get out, but they don't get liver failure because Glycogen is a non-toxic storage form of glucose in the liver. That's what your liver wants to do with energy. It does not want to make fat. And with glucose, it doesn't. Or at least, I should say, very little. Okay? But let's take a different carbohydrate. My favorite carbohydrate, maybe yours too, ethanol. (laughs) Let's consume 120 calories in ethanol. Different story. Now it's the other way around. Instead of 80% being metabolized by the body, now it's 20%. 24 calories off the table, 96 calories hitting the liver. Before, with glucose, it was 24. Now it's 96, four times the substrate. And what happens to it? Notice any glycogen there? None. Because it goes straight down to the mitochondria, and the mitochondria has to deal with this enormous amount of bolus of excess substrate, making citrate and providing the substrate for this de novo lipogenesis Dr. Stanhope talked about, leading to the hypertriglyceridemia, which ultimately gets converted to adipose tissue here, causing the lipid droplet, that's the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and also inducing inflammation because of the activation of this enzyme here called Junk1, Cjun, and terminal kinase 1, which inactivates insulin receptor substrate 1. Bottom line, no pop-off valve, no glycogen, lots of mitochondrial dysfunction, and all the diseases we know of that uh, go along with the metabolic syndrome. Now, if we consume fructose, now sucrose, that is, okay, 120 calories in sucrose, an 8-ounce glass of orange juice. Equicaloric, 120 calories each, but not equimetabolic, because what's going to happen the glucose is going to do the same 20-80 split it did before, so 48 calories out here to be metabolized. Here's the 12 for glucose, but the entire fructose bolus is going to get metabolized by the liver because only the liver has the GLUT5 transporter to get the fructose in. That's the liver's job is to basically metabolize the fructose, and here's what happens with fructose. You see glycogen anywhere in there? Nowhere. But you see lots going down to the mitochondria, you bet, for the same reason. So you might call metabolic syndrome mitochondrial constipation because there's too much going in and not enough coming out and in the process generating reactive oxygen species causing all sorts of cellular dysfunction and death and ultimately peripheral metabolic disease here's chronic ethanol exposure here on the left here's chronic fructose exposure here on the right 8 out of 12 same disease because it's the same they are the same there's no difference because after all where do you get Ethanol from? Fermentation of fructose. It's called wine. We do it next door over here in Napa Valley. There's the Mandavi Center over there. So what's the difference? Here's a can of soda. Here's a can of beer. 150 calories each. 75 fructose, 75 glucose. Here it's 90 ethanol, 60 maltose. That's glucose. 10% hepatic metabolism. Do the math. The calories hitting the liver are the same, and they're both going straight to the mitochondria with no pop-off valve. Therefore, in America, we have something called beer belly. Well, guess what? America suffers from 
soda belly. It's the same thing for the same reasons, the same phenomenon, and of course now it's worldwide. In addition, we've heard today from several speakers that junk food addiction may indeed exist, and we actually have plenty of data now to support the notion that changes in dopamine neurotransmission and or clearance ultimately impact total intake of food, in particular sucrose. So is sugar addictive? Well, the lay public seems to know. It's a question of getting the scientists on board. And again, <laughs> and again you've seen this uh, slide already. Here's the co- uh, control brain against the cocaine brain with the downregulation of D2 receptors. Here's the control ba- brain and the obese brain doing the same thing. Bottom line, it's, if it's not the same, it sure does look alike. So is there really such a thing as sugar addiction? So what we need to do is we need to look for similarities to other drugs of dependence. Well, nicotine, morphine, amphetamine, cocaine, cannabis, the one I think is the best analogy is ethanol because ethanol is a nutrient, fructose is a nutrient. Ethanol is for energy, fructose is for energy. Do you need ethanol to live? No. Do you need fructose to live? No. Is it abused by socioeconomic uh, status uh, uh, disproportionately? Yes. Okay, um, is it cheap? Yes. Etc., etc., etc. Bottom line, they're the same. The criteria for addiction, craving, I'm sorry, binging, we've already talked about, withdrawal, we can talk about uh, greater length craving, and cross sensitization with others or drugs of abuse, enhanced locomotion, and increased consumption. These are all physiologic phenomena that have been shown to be present in using fructose by Bart Hobel's group uh, and Nicole Levina's group. So I would pose to you that our entire food supply has been fructosylated. For palatability, especially with the decrease in fat, remember the low-fat directive of the early 1980s? Yeah, but when you take fat out of the food, it tastes like cardboard. Food industry knows that. You've got to do something to, to replace the flavor. Okay? Everybody knows snack wells? Okay? Two grams of fat out, 13 grams of carbohydrate in, four of which are sugar. Okay? And also ostensibly is a browning agent, which is the Maillard reaction. Okay? That's what causes the banana to brown here. You know what? That's going on in your arteries right now as we speak. Okay? Just take a look at this. I'm really surprised that I'm the one showing this slide. Okay? But here's soda per capita, and here's adult diabetes rate in America. Notice anything? And I particularly want to show this because just this past weekend on Saturday, there was an op-ed in the New York Times by Charles Blow called The Biggest Losers. And what he was talking about was this band down here where you have the highest obesity rate, the highest diabetes rate, and the highest sugar consumption rate of any place in America and the least likely place for anything governmentally to happen because of its politics. Interesting. The biggest losers. Okay? And if you look globally, here's the world sugar consumption tripling over the course of the last 50 years. And you'll notice here's Brazil up here, per capita consumption. They have the highest increase in rate now of change in type 2 diabetes prevalence. And here's the uh, map of diabetes in the entire world. And you'll notice things like Malaysia. They are the highest fructose consumers of all. And they have the highest diabetes rate. So who's winning the war? Despite the economic downturn of 2008, McDonald's revenues, Coke, Pepsi revenues, way higher than the S&P 500. Okay? And here's General Mills, ConAgra, Hormel, Kraft, Procter & Gamble against the S&P. Bottom line, you want to make some money? Invest in a food company. That's the way it works. Okay? And we, they know why, and we do too now. 
The point is, we got a problem. Because we have a substance that we're talking about today that has two effects, a peripheral metabolic effect. It's a chronic dose-dependent hepatotoxin, just like ethanol. Okay? At low dose, no problem, just like ethanol. But at high dose, big problem, just like ethanol. And we also know that it also causes increased consumption. So now we have a vicious cycle between consumption and disease. And the question is, how do you break that vicious cycle? So we have toxic substances which are not abused. Okay? Here are some nutrients, iron, vitamin D. In large doses, they hurt you. But there's no abuse potential for them. Pseudoephedrine, pseudofed, is not, you know, it, it's, got, it's toxic, but it's not abused unless you turn it into crystal meth, then it's abused. Now they put it behind the, uh, the counter at the drugstore. Okay? On the other hand, we have abused substances which are not toxic, at least you know, like caffeine. Okay? I mean, anybody regulating caffeine? I need my shot right now. Uh, and nicotine is not toxic per se. It's abusive, but it's not toxic. The tars are in the cigarette. That's where we are. Okay? So, we abuse, so we do regulate that. But nicotine per se, we don't regulate. We got nicorette gum. Okay? The point is we have a vicious cycle going on here between toxic substances that are abused. Here they are. Morphine, amphetamine, cocaine, cannabis, ethanol, and now sugar. Educational efforts alone have never reduced this consumption of other substances of dependence. Period. They don't work. Successful efforts have required both individual legislation or uh, 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 interventions, which we might call rehab. Do we have a sugar rehab? Not that I know of. And societal intervention, which we call laws. Taxation, regulation, interdiction. The postulate is we will need a global policy to reduce sugar consumption. At the American Heart Association, this has been recognized to be at least uh, uh, associated with cardiovascular disease. I am a co-author on this uh, scientific statement where we recommend reduction from 22 teaspoons a day, which is the current median for America, down to nine for males or six for females. And I'm very proud of this uh, uh, scientific statement, and I subscribe wholeheartedly to it. The point is, everyone wants to make obesity about personal responsibility. It's your fault. Calories in, calories out. You have control over your calories in. You have control over your calories out. Therefore, it's your fault. Therefore, it's personal responsibility. I would pose to you that's a complete waste of time. It doesn't get us anywhere and has actually hurt us in the process. The fact is, all of these have been personal responsibility illnesses at one time or another. Syphilis, cholera, lead poisoning, TB, foodborne illnesses, vitamin deficiencies, AIDS, pollution. And bottom line is, enough people got sick, you had to get people on board to make a difference, to recognize that it was a public health problem. This is a public health problem. We have Michelle Obama saying we're going to do something about childhood obesity with the Let's Move campaign. And the focus here is on the individual, the family, and the community in some very good ways. I would say necessary, but I would also say not sufficient because she leaves government and the food industry out. And we're going to need them on board. The question is, do they come on board voluntarily or do they come on board not voluntarily? And that's the big question. So I would pose to you, and this is to Dr. Brownell as well. Ashley, you get to bring this back to him. Can our toxic environment, which Dr. Brownell quoted originally, can, be, can it be changed without governmental or societal intervention, especially when there are potentially addictive substances involved? That's the question for today. Societal intervention, when we do it, requires something we call externalities. That is, 
How does your behavior affect me? Because if your behavior affects you, who gives a flying? Go kill yourself. But if your behavior affects me, now all of a sudden, it's a big deal. So that's the question here. So if you smoke, drink, or take drugs, it's bad for me. Secondhand smoke, we know, car accidents, declining house prices, altered work productivity. It's bad for me if you do any of those things. Therefore, I'm going to make sure you get regulated. So how does this work with obesity? How does your obesity affect me? (laughs) All right, $274 million extra in jet fuel. Does that affect me? Discomfort on the subway? Sinking of boats due to the weight? You know, the, the boat that in Plattsburgh, New York, that was crossing Lake Champlain, it was uh, 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 validated for 140 humans, not 140 obese humans, and it sunk. Okay? Eh. All right, here's why. Okay? $65 billion reduction in work productivity, 50% increase in absenteeism, 50% increase in health insurance premiums, $150 billion waste in health care resources. Obesity is a threat to national security. Three surgeons general have now said so straight away, and the government pays twice. They pay for the corn subsidies and for the subsidies for various fast food things that we know about, and they also pay for the comorbidities, whether we like it or not, because they end up paying for emergency room visits, whether we're trying to reduce them or not. And now we've got 32 million sick people on the rolls because of Obamacare, We're supposed to make it up in preventative health services. How are we going to make it up in preventative health services when we can't even stop this obesity epidemic? It's often been said we wouldn't need obesity reform, uh, we wouldn't need healthcare reform if we had obesity reform. I completely agree. So, why is alcohol policy so relevant? Alcohol and sugar are so similar. That's why. Metabolic and CNS pathways are similar, as I've just shown you. Both are legal substances that produce health harms when overused. There's little danger for moderate consumption. True, no argument. But how about for big consumption? And the burden of harm falls disproportionately on low SES groups. We have a strong evidence base for alcohol policy. We have 1,500 years' worth of alcohol policy to, to choose from. We have centuries of experience. We have a diversity of approaches. And we have robust findings that all show that things work. And what works? Change the environment. That's what works. Not change the behavior, change the environment. Here are things that don't work. Public information campaigns don't work. Government guidelines don't work. Warning labels on product packaging don't work. And school-based education programs don't work either. Was just say no a success? (laughs) Give me a break. How about for food? Well, we have something going on right now. We have menu labeling. Okay? That's a public education campaign, isn't it? All right? This is work that Andrea Garber has contributed to. This is the New York City study. So they've been looking at McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and a comparison group in Newark, New Jersey. Basically, the same ethnic groups in the same locale, but one city with food labeling, one without. A reasonable uh, comparison. 349 children and adolescents, 69% accompanied by a parent, 90% from uh, minority ethnic racial groups. Here's the data. No statistically significant differences in calories purchased before and after labeling. 35% ate fast food anyway. 57% reported noticing the calorie labels. That's not very good. 9% reported considering the information. 72% reported that taste was the most important factor in meal selection. How about that? Any surprise to anyone? How about strategies that might work? 
controls on advertising and marketing. In, in 1978, the Federal Trade Commission tried to regulate food marketing to children. They got their head handed to them by Congress because the food industry lobbied them. It was called KidVid at the time, and the Federal Trade Commission has never been heard from since. In 2007, 52 European health ministers convened in Istanbul and agreed that food marketing to children did not make sense because children could not interpret what was advertising, what was the commercial, and what was the TV show. Okay? How about government counter-advertising campaigns? And then finally, what about industry self-regulation? In 2007, I approached Deborah Taylor Tate, the president of the Federal Communications Commission at the Childhood Obesity Conference down in Anaheim, and I discussed this factor, fact exactly with her directly, face-to-face, and her response was, I expect the food industry to police themselves. <laughs> so, can we police them? Or can they police themselves? There's a, there's a, by the way, there's a move out right now called Retire Ronald. You can find it online okay, from, the, from the Center for Public Health Advocacy. You've seen this already, right? This is from Sugar Information, the fat time of day, you're really hungry and eat two of everything. This, this was the Federal Trade Commission in 1972, cease and desist on the Sugar Information uh, Incorporated. Sugar might be just the willpower you need to curb your appetite. I love this. The birth of the cola wars. For better start in life, start cola earlier. Here we are talking about what's going on in terms of young children. And here, why we have the youngest customers in the business. You want to trust them to self-regulate. Okay, good. <laughs> Food and SpongeBob. There we go. All right. M&Ms, Hot Wheels, and NASCAR. Educational toys. I love that. Okay. Soft drink logos on baby bottles, all of this good stuff. And this was last week at a Publix in Florida. Drinks are on us. Publix is rewarding top grades with free apple juice and soda. Students, we salute your thirsts for knowledge. It's a global marketing campaign right there. How about there and there? And unfortunately, the effect is global too. They've even infiltrated us. Okay, 28% of all children's hospitals have a fast food concession in the lobby. Okay, there. I love it, sir, eats a lot, grill. So here's that 52 European health ministers to reduce food con- uh, uh, marketing of junk foods to children. Here's Deborah Taylor Tate's comment. And we did something right here in San Francisco. Santa Clara did it first, we did it next. The toy ban on Happy Meals, and I am proud to say I was part of that movement. And I am, and you can, you can, okay. Because the toy should not be a coercion for children, okay? If they want to buy the food for the food, fine. If they want to buy the toy for the toy, fine. But you don't coerce the kid with the toy. So, what about alcohol? So, in the Nordic countries, Finland, here, Norway, Sweden, they have statutory control of alcohol sales. Why? Because all liquor stores are state-owned. So they set the rates, they set the prices, they're all the same, so if you want to buy alcohol, you can't go next door and buy it cheaper, okay, like we can in America where you can go to New Hampshire and buy it a lot cheaper because there's no sales tax. Strategies that are likely to work, pricing strategies, controls at the point of sales, and what are called bundling strategies. So disposable income parallels alcohol sales. Could the, would this be true for sugar? Okay. Could we price things through direct prices through controls on monopolies? In America, that's pretty hard to do. Taxation's a little bit better idea, and differential taxation we can talk about. 
Why does taxation work? Because it reduces availability by effectively raising the price of the commodity. It's easy and cheap for governments to implement and enforce. They're already in every convenience store already. And evidence shows it impacts the heaviest consumers. Now, some people say that that's um, paternalistic against the lower socioeconomic strata. I would say to you that what's paternalistic is expecting them to go to an emergency room when they get sick with their, uh, with their heart attack. Okay? Wouldn't they save money if they didn't have to do that? Okay? And you could differentially subsidize healthy, fresh fruits and vegetables instead of convenience foods for their purpose. Okay? How about soda taxes and BMI? Existing taxes on soda do not result in soda consumption or obesity rates. They do not. Small taxes do generate money for programs, and that's what everybody's talking about right now. About right now. A dime on a can of soda. This is for Dr. Brownell, and we have had this discussion. Okay? The question is, would a dime a can actually change anything? The price elasticity on a can of soda is so enormous, so enormous, that if they actually raised the price of a can of soda because of the tax, all that would happen is that the price would go down to offset it. It would change nothing. What has to happen is it has to go big, really big, like what happened with cigarettes, double maybe. Okay? Then you're going to get some attraction. And Roland Sturm at the Rand Corporation had a nice paper looking at this. And that's what we saw with both tobacco, tobacco and ethanol. I love this. Tell Congress not to raise taxes on sugary sodas. Hello, Congress. Yeah, that's what we got. Now, restriction of access. The iron law of alcohol policy says that reducing the availability of alcohol will reduce alcohol consumption. No ifs, ands, or buts. If it's not around, you ain't going to get it, thereby reducing alcohol-related problems. Controls at the point of sales, age limits on purchase and use, carding kids for Coke. Kid walks into a convenience store, says, I want to buy a can of beer. Uh, cashier says, show me your ID. I say, why is there a convenience store within 500 feet of a school? Because they're a target, that's why, because it's coercive. So let the kid walk in, say, I want to buy a can of Coke. Let the cashier say, show me your ID. Okay? If a parent wants a kid to buy a tab of Coke, let them buy it for him. Parents come to my obesity clinic all the time and say, I can't control my kid's ability to go get the soda on his way home from school. Indeed, that's the case. I say, well, take his money away. Well, you know, it's kind of tough, but anyway. Licensing and zoning controls on sales outlets, permits that control hours of operation. What if they couldn't sell soda for the hours between 3 and 5, but they could sell it the rest of the time? That might work. Okay, there are things to do. The Nordic model says bundling controls on availability. Okay? And here we have Denmark and Finland. What they do is they jack up the rates on distilled spirits and bring the rates down on beer because that's lower alcohol. So maybe charge less for diet soda. Not that I'm a, a diet soda fan, mind you, but, I mean, to get things started, to get things rolling. And does it work? Well, here's the Swedish uh, data. Okay? Here's hospitalization rates once they put these uh, 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 statutory controls into place. Here's the alcohol intoxication rate once these controls got put into place. So what do we know? We know that local ordinances just taxation, like sugar, not just soda, because juice is worse, right? Sugar-sweetened beverage in general, because that's basically a fructose delivery vehicle, any way you want to put it, whether it's juice, soda, sports drinks, Tampico, Agua Fresca, whatever you want to call it, bottom line, our livers can't handle that sugar glut that fast, that's what we were talking about, dissociating the nutrient from the food. Okay? And it provides incentives for farmers' markets. Local ordinance such as restriction, zoning convenience stores away from schools. 
regulating operating hours, carting kids for Coke if you have to, federal policy measures like stopping marketing of sugar to kids. How about removing fructose from the FDA's grass list? Generally regarded as safe, as long as it's on there, any food industry uh, representative can put any amount of fructose in any food they want to, surreptitiously, at any level they want, with no repercussion. How about a limit on that? And ultimately, ending the corn subsidy. There is no economist worth their salt that believes in food subsidies anyway. They say, let the market work. Okay? We could differentially um, subsidize other things in its place for pater- you know, to battle the paternalistic question. So, long-term solutions, government controls similar to alcohol, price controls, point-of-sales controls, bundling policies of various sorts. For further reading, I refer you to these. Okay? If anybody wants, I can send you this list later. Okay? This one is going to be coming out later this year, is Fast Food Addictive. We talked about it today. And with that, I want to thank my collaborators at the UCSF Department of Pediatrics, in particular Dr. Andrea Garber, who's here, and also Dr. Stephanie Wynn, who's a pediatric nephrologist here at UC Davis, who worked on the fructose uric acid hypertension uh, link with me as well. Jean-Marc Schwartz, who is a card-carrying fructose biochemist, his name has come up several times already today, who, when I showed him this uh, thesis, he went, you know, it is a toxin. Our colleagues at the UCSF Department of Psychiatry who work on tobacco and see the relation between that. And again, my colleagues, Laura Schmidt and Claire Brindis at the Institute for Health Policy Studies. And with that, I'll close and thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.